Hello, welcome to the Resolution podcast, Mike and Olivia. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us about economic abuse in financial remedy proceedings. It is obviously a hot topic, but before we get into it, perhaps each of you could tell us a bit about who you are. Olivia, would you like to start? Uh, hi, thanks so much for having me. I am a family law solicitor. I'm a partner at a firm called Hunters in London, and my experiences um, in all manner of family law cases, but um, I'd say um, the vast majority of my clients are victims or survivors of domestic abuse, coercive control, um, and especially in financial remedy cases um, of, of economic abuse. Thank you. And Mike? Yeah, hi, thanks for having me on as well. I'm a barrister. I took Silk uh, in 2021. Um, I specialise in financial remedy work and Talata work. I gave up doing children work in about, I don't know, 2009. So I, you know, my recollection of fact findings in children cases is very old school. The judge would, would be saying in those days, you know, pick your best five allegations, which I know they're not supposed to do anymore. Um, and obviously it's interesting seeing these types of allegations becoming more relevant in financial remedy proceedings and seeing uh, for us financial remedy practitioners how to sort of catch up with what the children lawyers have been been learning about uh, in the last few years. Yes. Oh, so, so you were back in the time of pick the first, the worst and yep. the last allegation, yeah? Uh, pretty much as Judge did it in Owens and Owens in the no fault divorce case, yeah. So just so that we're clear what we're talking about today, I think what we're talking about is the fact that economic abuse has now become part of the definition of domestic abuse and that there are, there's an obvious correlation between that and financial remedies. Do, would, it, would it be helpful if we we'd sort of define the terms and then move on from there? Sure. So um, I'm going to start with domestic abuse, which is defined in the Domestic Abuse Act 2021. And there are five limbs of that. Firstly, physical or sexual abuse. Secondly, violent or threatening behaviour. Thirdly, controlling or coercive behaviour. And we'll come back to that in a second. Fourthly, economic abuse. And then fifthly, psychological, emotional, other abuse. And that goes on to define economic abuse as this, any behaviour that has a substantial adverse effect on a person's ability to either acquire, use or maintain property or other uh, money, or secondly, obtain goods or services. And then finally, get the legal definitions out of the way. Uh, the Serious Crime Act uh, created the offence of uh, coercive control behaviour, and that is committed where one party repeatedly or continuously engages in behaviour towards another which is controlling or coercive um, <clears throat> and that behaviour had a serious effect on the second person and for the criminal offence at least um, the offender knew or ought to have known that that behaviour would have that effect and so we're looking at economic abuse primarily but also looking at coercive and controlling behaviour and how that also impacts on financial remedy proceedings. Thank you for that. Olivia, could you could you help us really with what this looks like from your experience as a solicitor? What does it look like during the marriage um, and upon separation? Yeah, I think um, it's really helpful to define coercive control because I think the most important thing to remember when looking at economic abuse is it's not a separate kind of abuse. Coercive control is what's at the heart of every domestic abuse relationship. And the other forms of abuse, you know, physical, sexual, economic abuse, they are um, expressions of coercive control, really. And so it's always part of that broader um, relationship dynamic. And economic abuse happens during the course of relationships. Um, and we see that in terms of, you know, the economic relationship between the parties, which can be on a kind of 
grander scale of, you know, maybe impacting whether or not somebody can work, their prospects generally, um, or just the way that money's used on a kind of micro scale and it's often invisible. And then during the course of proceedings and upon separation, I think the proceedings themselves become a channel through which abuse has happened. So you don't necessarily have had to have had economic abuse during the course of a marriage to then see it during proceedings. And I think after um, parties separate and after people kind of manage to remove themselves from abusive relationships, that need to continue um, kind of exerting control over the victim or the survivor continues. And, and usually the two channels that are that remain are either child contact arrangements, which we see all the time. And that, I think, has come to the court's attention more quickly because we've started to see how that impacts child welfare. So it's harder to ignore. But the other channel is through financial remedy proceedings or through negotiations. And I think that's been kind of widely dismissed over the years because we have this idea of if you if you get into con if you get into conduct, then it's a sort of rabbit hole and then everybody will start throwing allegations around, you'll never get sorted. That is exactly the sort of question that, that I think people will be asking themselves is is how how do we differentiate this from what we've been told about conduct and how how do we take the court past that knee-jerk we're not looking into that um, response when you try and raise conduct allegations at your first appointment in your form e or or wherever it might be I don't know Mike do you, do you think that the existing law on on conduct in financial remedy covers covers this or has the world moved and the law not caught up yet well, I think the short answer to that is the world has moved and the law has not caught up. And I think there's a lot um, going on there. Um, so just looking at it in historical context, the reason why we generally ignore conduct was that in the past, we actually did have regard to conduct and you know the guilty wife would not get maintenance. So to ignore conduct was seen as a bit of a good thing you know it was a beneficial development in the 1970s and the other thing I think that sort of gave rise to that was the fact that finding facts going into these issues takes time costs money and a real sort of reluctance to spend that money in cases where you know ultimately the the outcome was going to be driven by competing needs. Now, I, I think, and this is a personal view, that at, at the state of the law at the moment, you've got two issues. You've got the threshold. Is the conduct sufficiently serious that it, it satisfies the 25-2G test? Or is it in export disregard? But then you've got to work out, even if you get over that threshold, what do you do with it? And... There are some some cases where the courts have tried to deal with the second of those. And I'll deal with that if I can, just for a second. I mean, this idea that uh, the court should not be punitive or confiscatory for its own sake. How do you deal with conduct? It's a potentially magnifying factor when looking at uh, the applicant or the claimant's position under the other checklist, uh, 25 factors. That's all very well when you're looking at a hierarchy of needs where there's not massive to go around. So the person who is able to establish they are the victim of conduct might be given a better claim at the limited resources. It's not going to work in terms of sharing. You can't magnify the division by two. And I think that's the reason why many courts are reluctant, therefore, on the state of the current law. You've got the initial threshold to get over. And then you've got the difficulty of what you do with it. And in many cases, the courts, I mean, I have done this as a deputy district judge. I've said, I'm not going to let you run a conduct case because even if you prove it, it's not going to move the outcome of the case sufficiently. This is in cases where, you know, the, the total assets are between half a million uh, and quarter of a million. And it just isn't the court resources or the, 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 the it's not proportionate to go into these. So I think that's, that's the real difficulty on the current state of the law in some cases it does have it does have an impact not because anybody's calling it coercive control but if somebody's earning capacity is lower because 
they have not been given the support and the opportunity to work, you know, that that necessarily forms part of of the outcome of the case. Um, and it's sort of moving the the ethics from it, but still yeah. accounting. Well, in a way, I think I think judges are practitioners are much happier if you if you get rid of that label and and don't make it something new and shiny and just use the old way of looking at it sure any any conduct that has an economic impact any choices that the parties made voluntarily on the part or perhaps not voluntarily on their finances will have an impact on how the court looks at things post separation post divorce just listening to you you're talking about the difficulty of it moving the dial even on on you know lower to mid money cases i mean i could i can really imagine that a lot of cases where there are egregious examples of economic abuse could be the cases where there's there's literally no money virtually in the pot you know there's that we're really right down in the lower end of the bracket and I, I and I can really see those cases may have the most egregious examples of economic abuse, but but there really would be no money in the pot for for fact findings and preliminary issue hearings if the, if if that is the way that it's to be dealt with. And then is there anything in the final outcome that 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 leads you to anything other than looking at just bare needs? Um, you know, just trying to barely meet the needs. Um, I mean, is uh, are these issues harder the, the less money there is in the case? I think they're more difficult at the top and the bottom mm. end of the scale, perhaps. I think there are um, there are government services which you can go to if you are in debt and that you've you've been placed in that position as a you know, through domestic abuse, through coercive control. And if you go to a citizen's advice bureau, I don't know how effective those services are, but I know that it's something that is taken into account. But I think definitely at the lower end of the scale, you know, the abuse is always going to be more severe Mm. in that way. Okay, so the impact on small money cases, we think is going to be absolutely, absolutely chronic. Perhaps what so so what about in cases where there's slightly more money? What what might you see change? And I guess I, I'm asking in particular, would it have an impact perhaps on spousal maintenance? I mean, it's is it uh, is it going to have any impact whatsoever when it comes to capital awards or pension awards? My view is that there are circumstances where it might affect the structure of an award. So if you have, let's say, a, a, a spouse who's completely reluctant to engage any form of post-separation support, and so economic abuse takes the form of just simply cutting the other spouse off, denying them access to credit cards, accounts, all that sort of stuff, and then having to have an interim maintenance order at all for any kind of provision. And if there's, a, if there's a hints of coercive control in the case as well, then those sort of things are going to encourage a judge to look towards a clean break if it's affordable and not just, a, you know, a no maintenance clean break. Also not having deferred charges if you can avoid it, because that has the although it might look like a clean break for the people who's having to live with it, it really isn't. So I think those are those are situations where it has a, a difference on the structure, even if it might not have a difference on the amounts involved and again you've just got to i mean the easiest form of economic abuse to 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 prove is the the thing we've just been talking about someone who doesn't engage cuts someone off financially has to have interim maintenance orders made against them there it's really straightforward that it's plain and simple on the face of it that that's there they're doing it um on purpose and the judge or the, and the parties need to be aware of the, how you're going to deal with that in terms of the future options and the settlement options. Let's say someone has been the prime instigator of building up an asset base of four million quid over, say, 20 years, but has behaved in a abusive way to his partner throughout that time. How do you 
value how do you assess the relative importance of building up that asset base and that abuse over that period of time it's it's their marriage for rightly or wrong it's lasted that period of time obviously i i think the greater awareness of this issue will mean that in a case where coercive control has been raised and there's a medical report on the applicant's um, mental health, uh, if she establishes that, for instance, she's not going to be able to get herself back into the job market very straightforwardly, that's that's almost straightforward. And you you wouldn't even need to have any findings on coercive control if, in fact, the medical evidence was accepted that this is where that person is. And I know there are many judges who say when they're given a medical report, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine once the proceedings are over. I mean, that's the thing you've got to, I think, get past in every case, um, whatever the cause of the mental uh, illness or depression or whatever it is that's affecting on earning capacity. I don't think, from my experience, the, I don't think you can usually kind of separate out you know, the person quietly building up their assets and doing their, you know, doing their work well, and then separate from that, sort of being abusive at home to their partner. That type of abuse is, reaches into every part of someone's life and tends to be completely debilitating. And if somebody is, you know, building up their business and meanwhile being abusive to their partner, their partner will be involved in every part of that. And all of the little decisions in someone's life will be controlled by that. And that continues afterwards. It's not really about somebody either leaving a relationship with a mental illness, which prevents them from working, so much as the person who has been trying to control or has been successfully controlling their partner throughout the marriage will continue to do that for years afterwards if there is any kind of financial link or if there are children. And just acknowledging the reality that that will continue doesn't always necessarily interplay with the economics of the situation but I think the idea that you can kind of separate out you know parties finances from from that relationship it doesn't feel it's not something I recognize Mm. it's not uh it's not something that's 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 neat I guess I suppose listening to the two of you what's what's worrying me is how you ever uh, apart from in the extreme case that Mike gave us, where someone's just cut someone off and left them completely deprived, what, you know, what sort of evidence is gonna gonna need to be there in order to prove it? Because there's one thing uh, meeting someone and thinking it's it's happening or it has happened and it's affected them and it's affected their life outcome, but it's another thing being able to establish it in in court, as we all know. So. Uh, you know what what sort of thing would we be looking for to to feel confident that we'd be able to you know initially prove it in the first place is it does it have to be medical reports Mike no I mean I think the wider issue is just you know some kind of account of the functioning of the relationship some kind of account as to how they managed their money you know was was there joint accounts were there you know how how did the person you're meeting in conference for the first time how did they pay their everyday bills did they have to ask permission you know all those sort of things uh, are going to be relevant so in in the same way i think that person gathering evidence for a for a fact find in a in a in a contact or child arrangements case will need to get a pretty detailed overview of the relationship you're going to need that as well I mean, I think in terms of it was economic abuse it, that that again, it, you know, the definition sort of helps you work out what you're looking for. You know, if someone has been deprived of control over their financial um, independence or resources during the marriage and that continues afterwards. And again, sort of things we're talking about will also um, fit into that as well. I think um, where we see economic abuse most pertinently and perhaps where it's most relevant is not even about the economic abuse that happened during the course of the marriage and whether that should impact the award or the structuring of the award but economic abuse upon separation and through financial remedy proceedings as a form of litigation conduct and that should be easier to spot and identify and that should be factored in to awards and 
and cost orders. And I think it feels like the court might even be going more in the other direction now where if you are representing a party who is kind of desperately trying to establish what the other party's finances are or trying to get disclosure or trying to prevent them from dissipating their assets. Um, and we've all been there where you're sort of chasing disappearing assets um, and there are more and more delays and there's kind of half disclosure or missing disclosure or disclosure that doesn't make any sense. I think that should be a form of litigation misconduct. It is a form of litigation misconduct, but it's really hard to pin down and I don't feel it's adequately adequately assessed or kind of acknowledged by the court that that is a form of litigation misconduct and recently and these aren't necessarily cases where that was what happened but um, there seems to be a movement in case law where um, the party who runs up the higher costs is having part of those costs taken out of their wards because judges are saying that these shouldn't um, come out of the marital pot and it's not fair but inevitably the party who is chasing the money or trying to find the money is the one who is running up higher costs. Um, so it feels like that's not being adequately acknowledged. Um, and that form of um, uh, economic abuse is something that we deal with day in, day out. Also, one of the main ways that you can help somebody who is a, a victim is by having proper legal representation for them, because that gives them enormous strength to stand up to somebody who they might not otherwise be able to to stand up to but that in itself is expensive isn't it and I'm probably not the only person listening to what you're saying and thinking there's probably quite a correlation between people who engage in coercive control and people who represent themselves in legal proceedings (laughs) mindset and so again you find yourself in that in that other trap don't you where you know, you're 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 running up fees hand over fist, supporting a client who's really struggling uh, emotionally and who's got a very complicated case to try and make out, and where the other party is is not running up fees and is not cooperating. So, um, yeah. And as the case goes on, your client appears less and less reasonable because the other party has become impoverished. They've lost their job. They've gone off sick. You know, the bank accounts have all emptied. The the, the company no, is no longer worth anything. <laughs> Everything's sort of disappearing. And your client appears less and less reasonable. And that is economic abuse. Um, and, and then they'll get blamed for having very high costs at the end of it. So... Yeah, how you deal with that. But that that's evidence that should be easy to put together. But it's about finding court time, isn't it, as well, to even begin to look at, um, well, court, to argue over how litigation was conducted. It's court time and it's court interest as well, isn't it? Because, you know, if you, even a Section 25 statement, if you if you get through past the FDR and you still haven't settled, which is unlikely in, in a case with economic abuse that you would settle then then you're told that your section 25 statement's got to be six pages of 12 point font you know and and as mike said at the beginning you're discouraged even from pleading conduct so uh, any any tips for how you how you get the the judge to take seriously that these things need to be factored into the final evaluation and therefore need to be properly pleaded well, I'm just dealing with that. I mean, I think if you're if you're going to run litigation conduct case that's going to sound in costs at at the trial, then I think you are going to need to say to your judge, or the FDR judge, or the judge who's giving directions, that we we need jail to include somewhere either as an exhibit to or part of our system twenty five statement. This is the detailed chronology, and you know it's it is annoying for judges to have to roll their sleeves up and and get to see it, but ultimately. Very often, the only way you prove someone has dragged their feet deliberately or caused unnecessary incursion, of course, is to just to go through the chronology. And if as long as it's presented in a clear, consistent way, you can you can get judges involved. I mean, I just want to go back to looking at something we've just been talking about, because I think on interim applications, I think judges are a, a bit more robust than they used to be. That's my perception. And that they don't necessarily need the label economic abuse to be added or they don't suppose it will do any harm but 
you know, if if you can establish I mean, interim maintenance applications compared to when I started are so rare that if you if you get one and you make one and it's obvious that someone's um been dragged all the way to do that, then a judge is very likely to make an order for cost because they're so they're so rare. Um <clears throat> and the other forms of um interim applications, if if you can demonstrate that the respondent's got free resources to be applied to the applicant's legal resources. The applicant's got no other way of reasonably providing herself with um, legal representation. Then the LSPO will be justified to application to make, and you'll get your costs of that as well. So I think I think in, in the interim stage, um, these sort of issues are absolutely to the fore, and that's where they really come into play. On costs, I mean, I think going back to the, the final hearing and, and what you've been saying, Simon, I think it is tricky. Um, but I think, again, you know, rightly or wrongly, the focus on open offers since 2019 and the change means that judges are now having to, you know, the, the assumption before them was simply, oh, well, no order for costs. Doesn't matter if one party's racked up more costs than the other. Doesn't matter if there's been litigation conduct because you know by the time I've got to the end of my judgment I'm 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 exhausted I can't be dealing with a cost application and I think you know the the focus the case law the last three or four years means that that approach has has gone so I think again as long as you um, can present that uh, the chronology in terms of litigation misconduct or economic abuse through litigation properly then you should get um, a judge willing to to listen and to, to deal with those issues. I realise we're now rather dotting between interim applications and the final <laughs> hearing. <laughs> um, uh, so we obviously haven't got our chronology, chronology straight this <laughs> afternoon. But going back onto those interim applications that we were just t- touching on, one of the things that we do see now is is one side saying my expenditure has been severely curtailed and this is economic abuse then maybe they use the language now maybe they don't but I think the language is seeping into our consciousness a bit so so one side maybe says that and then the other side says well hang on a minute there is a limit to the expenditure even if it's you know a very uh a, a large objectively a large limit but there is a limit you know now we need two houses and we need legal fees and you know we know we know life is more expensive when you separate so um what well there are two questions one how does the paying party legitimately be able to impose some some spending controls or some some spending limits without being faced uh without uh, you know without being faced with that sort of response and secondly really it's a question from the court's perspective how do they sift out what what is economic control and what what is a sort of legitimate allocation of 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 budgets so olivia do you have any thoughts on either of those i think the best way to keep the other party's costs low is to provide full and frank disclosure um (laughs) and then hopefully the questions will be answered um when it comes to kind of expensive you know expensive um expert reports you know ultimately if they're not agreed that's got to be for a matter that's got to be a matter for the court to kind of control throughout the process i do think that removing solicitor's correspondence from bundles a few years back has been really helpful because a lot of the time we just don't bother writing about it now because we know it's not going to get seen I do think that's reduced costs but yet you know costs do keep spiraling uh, and some of some of the costs that you see in you know some of these financial remedies cases are just you know it's it just extraordinary and um, maybe I'm not expensive enough but I do look at them I just think wow how did that happen so I, I don't know how you how you limit the other side's costs but I guess if I knew how, I guess if I knew how um, they were being racked up that high in the first place, I could have a look at the bill and all through it and say what was um, unnecessary. But do you have a have a view, Simon, as a as a fellow solicitor? No, but uh, I'm I'm conscious that for every every person who makes such an allegation, there's somebody uh, on the receiving end, and that although 
often the allegation will be absolutely legitimate. There, there's also, I'm sure, a tendency once once a term becomes well known for it to be to be misapplied. And I, I guess that's what Anita was getting at, really. If 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 you're for the better off person and they feel that the you know the expenditure on the credit on the credit card or from the joint account is 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 getting out of control and you try and impose limits um are you going to be accused of uh, of trying to exert economic control and is there anything you can do to make sure that you're not well i think you're always going to get accused of it i think the way to sort of avoid the mud sticking is to is to do as Olivia says, is you give full and frank disclosure so that the parties and, and particularly the other party who might be tempted to, to, to raise that issue or make that accusation has got uh, a, a true picture of the, of the resources. You have some analysis of the budgets that show that the current level of expenditure is simply unsustainable. And that then you, you give some notice and say, well, as from you know, next, whenever, you know, next month, beginning of next month, you know, the arrangements are going to have to change. And here, you know, the credit card will be limited to whatever it is or the joint account will be closed and they will be transferred into your sole account, the following amounts on the basis that, you know, certain outgoings will still be met directly by the other party. And that that's the only way I think if you just, you know, say, sod it, I'm paying too much, I'm cutting it off, then you're just going to cause, you know, problems, even if even if the the expenditure, the excess expenditure criticism is justified. You've got to be constructive and proactive to make sure that you control the expenditure in a way that doesn't leave you open to those sort of um, accusations of economic abuse. I think that's right. I think that there, there always has been a kind of responsible, transparent mechanism for tapering down maintenance when it's too high, when circumstances change. It's just about it's about not being economically abusive, making sure making sure everyone's all right, and everyone's got enough money, and everyone's got enough notice to pay their bills. I think that I think that's you know would still be considered reasonable, but you, you know you can't stop the allegations. Can we look at the case law in respect of economic abuse, Mike? Perhaps you could help us with what's the first case that we should be looking at. So, in terms of economic abuse and coercive control in the context of financial remedy proceedings, there are three sort of recent-ish cases. There's a case called DN and UD or UD and DN, uh, a Schedule 1 case. There's a case called Trahan and Lim, which dealt with coercive control in the context of a post-nuptial agreement. And in the last month or so, there's also been a decision of Her Honour Judge Madeline Reardon, called DP and EP conduct economic abuse and needs so taking them in order the first one was a schedule one case and what's interesting about that is that the the judge had the benefit of findings um, in this case that the father had made threats had uh, exercised emotional abuse and financial control and manipulation towards the children and he justified with that, he justified the making of an unusual order in Schedule 1 proceedings, which was the making of an order providing a capital benefit to the children beyond their minority or dependents. Um, and on the basis that he considered that such manipulation and control would continue into their adulthood, he considered the children would be uh, vulnerable and therefore um, made uh, that order. The Court of Appeal overturned that uh, in late 2021, as I recall, and um, effectively said that whatever the rights and wrongs of those um, findings, they didn't justify the um, making of capital provision on an outright basis or into a, a child's um, adulthood. Um, <clears throat> Now, obviously, that decision is very particular to Schedule 1, which, as we know, basically says that absent special or exceptional circumstances, capital orders only endure during a child's um, minority or dependence. So that one wasn't that much of a surprise. I guess it, that case doesn't tell us whether it would have made 
any difference to the levels or or quantum of the award that you would see during a child's minority does it not really my recollection of the case is that it wasn't argued on that basis the the case involved a father who had very significant amount of wealth uh, and looking at the case again i mean the, the family home was worth 10 million uh, and my recollection is it's one of those cases where the father uh, relied on the millionaire's defense so he was saying I can afford any reasonable order you can make, Judge. So that wasn't going to be a, a an issue in any event. Okay. And what's the next case we should look at? Yeah, so Trahan and Lim had a little bit of notoriety when counsel, junior counsel instructed the case, uh, decided to criticise the judge on Twitter about um, the judge's decision. But essentially it was a, a post-up case. And the... Judge Mr. Justice Cohen uh, took the view that although there had been a great deal of forensic exercise about whether or not this postnup had been procured by coercive control or undue influence, he took the view that it was all a sideshow because he took the view that on any view it didn't meet uh, the needs of the applicant uh, wife. <clears throat> I mean, looking at it, he said the assets were a little over four million the costs incurred came to just nearly seven hundred thousand he said uh, given that it didn't meet her needs uh, it was uh, never going to be upheld now there are there are two things to say about that before we look at the relevance of coercive control in, in that context in most cases i think it will be important to establish whether a, a nuptial agreement has been entered into freely or, or, or as a subject of undue influence, because in, if it has been vitiated at the outset by undue influence, most judges will simply ignore it. Whereas if it has been properly entered into, um, satisfying the Ravmacher test, entered into of the party's um, free will with a full appreciation of its implications, then it will have an impact on the outcome. And it may be the judge just took the view that on any view of needs, it it wasn't going to fly. But I think in other cases, that may be different. The other thing to say about it, therefore, is the judge recognised in this case that coercive control, although not referred to in Edgar, which is a case from the 1970s, um, <clears throat> or indeed in Radmack, a, a case from sort of 10, uh, 11 years ago, the judge considered that coercive or controlling behaviour is an example of undue pressure. And so, um, <clears throat> um, uh, and indeed, the, the judge said, well, if the test had been laid down uh, in Edgar nowadays, he might well have used words such as coercive and controlling behaviour. So its its relevance, I think, is there, certainly much more so, I think, in, in post-nup cases where there is an established relationship rather than necessary prenup cases that coercive controlling behavior if established will be potentially a vitiating factor for nuptial agreements do you, do you think that case pulled forward the jurisprudence a bit olivia yeah i think it's i think it's a really interesting case and i i think i wonder if it will kind of open the the doorway for these arguments to be advanced in other cases where consent is a factor generally I was thinking about it in terms of for example child abduction cases I had a Hague case recently where well I was for the person who had allegations made against them so I wasn't advancing this argument but I was thinking in that case that you know it could be argued that consent to you know relocation could also be vitiated and it's not something that's come up before and I think this is this is the sort of natural next step where you know we spend so much time examining consent and what's valid um, in the law and and yet we've we've rarely kind of put these two things together domestic abuse coercive control and and consent and actually you know, once you start to put that, once you start to put those two factors together, it can have such a, a broad and profound impact, um, especially within family law. And I think in so many aspects of life, really, um, and in other, uh, even, you know, the law of outside of family law, you can imagine situations where, you know, husbands and wives are buying houses together or 
Um, so I think it's I just think it's a really um, interesting development. And I think it could potentially have sort of more far reaching impacts, even in this case, or just post-nuptial agreements. I mean, what's interesting for me, going back to the facts of the case, is that in looking at the judgment, you know, the, the judge says this was a relationship that was at times tempestuous. The husband would on occasions uh, lose his temper. Um, he, the the judge absolved the husband of, of any um, specific, uh, you know, allegation of domestic violence. But it, what was also clear was that having regard to the, the way in which the agreement was formed, I mean, he said that the wife was the, the main instigator in the negotiations. And I think it's also just clear generally um, when you look at these prenup cases is that an attempt to get an allegation of coercive controlling behaviour or other, or other undue uh, influence cases off the ground with a reference to one allegation or one or two allegations is always very difficult when you have to look at the course and negotiations as a whole. And like I say, in a, in a post-nup, the fact that someone wants a post-nuptial agreement in itself usually means that something has gone wrong with their relationship if they haven't had one already. So it'd be unsurprising if there was, or it would be surprising rather, if there was no, nothing there at all in terms of what might be in a previous unreasonable behaviour petition. So, mm. but yes, that, that for me was the, the, the big takeaway that, you know, the Edgar test on upholding agreements is going to include coercive controlling behaviour as a as another potential vitiating factor. Mm. I think despite the court's you know sort of reluctance and almost contempt for the inclusion of this argument and seeing it as a waste of time it did actually deal with it quite kind of deftly and um, concisely and effectively and in a way that's quite useful you know to sort of carry forwards. And what about the um, Reardon judgment that you mentioned? I said earlier that it's quite difficult, I think, to envisage a case where proof of coercive controlling behaviour or economic abuse that doesn't have a direct financial impact is going to move the dial. And obviously, there's two reasons for that. One is the decision of Mostyn in OG and AG, where he basically says, you know, if there's no direct financial impact of the conduct, then you're not going to be able to rely upon it, which was always a little bit of a iffy statement in the eye in the eyes of the law. But also, so secondly, they're just the reluctance of judges to weigh in in the Section 25 exercise allegations of conduct or, or findings of conduct against the other factors. So what's interesting about this case is that, I mean, there, there was quite a lot of plain old fashioned um, economic abuse, you know, hiding money, uh, and disposing of assets, which the husband was able to get to grips with. And one of the really interesting things about this case was that the husband was effectively illiterate and had relied on the wife to sort of manage the family finances for over a, a great deal of time. And then, of course, when the relationship broke down, he discovered all manner of um, shenanigans that led to him effectively saying, well, there's ad back, uh, which he was able to successfully advance, um, non-disclosure, which ultimately the judge made some findings about, but also, thirdly, a an actual conduct case in the light of the economic abuse uh, that the judge um, found. So I think it's it's interesting that, and having said that it's difficult to see where economic abuse or coercive controlling behaviour might move the dial. This is, in fact, an example of it happening. Now, as I recollect, the judge, as I say, went through the, the evidence, um, added back um, a considerable amount of money, and ultimately she found that the overall assets were something in the region of 1.4, 1.5 million, having added back in a good deal, um, or about 100,000 or so, on the on the wife's side and obviously the first thing she did in, in this sort of case was to divide that uh, more or less in two having done that she then went on to give a further adjustment in the favor of the husband of three percent so instead of it being 50 50 on the new notional total of the assets it ended up being 53 47 in the husband's favor and so that worked out 
at about £45,000 that he got in addition to what he would have done because he had proved the economic abuse in this case. Um, and the judge specifically um, you know, considered whether or not she should um, make a um, an adjustment where there was no direct financial impact of the conduct, but went on to say that she should. She took the view that otherwise it would render uh, this idea of conduct uh, nugatory. Um, and so she, she did, as I say, make that adjustment. Now, we don't know exactly how much there was uh, in terms of costs. Husband, I think, him, uh, had a total cost of about 93,000. And most of his costs would have been incurred in any event by dealing with the ad back and the non-disclosure arguments. So I think it's a really exciting case in the sense that, you know, it, it, it's an illustration of um, conduct moving the dial, affecting the outcome at the end of the day. I, I, subject to any appeal, and it's only it only got published on Bailey on the 10th of January, so we don't know what's going to happen there. It may uh, be a useful decision to those who want to rely upon similar um, allegations in the future. My only, my only sort of, you know, pouring a bit of a uh, cold water on it potentially is that it's still, I think, potentially a, a bit of a risk, a bit of a costs issue. I mean, obviously, the husband got an order for costs in respect of all of this conduct, not just the, the economic abuse conduct. But if your if your case is just on economic abuse and you've got nothing else to add to it, no add back arguments. And you're potentially spending forty, fifty thousand pounds of costs, or a considerable amount of costs referable to that issue. Are you going to be discouraged from running that? Because one, you've got to invest in that uh, cost in the first place. Two, you run the risk of um, not succeeding on it uh, on the actual allegations, and three, you run the risk of it not making a difference to the outcome if a judge takes a different view to this judge. So I think um, it's really interesting, but also I think maybe the message is don't get too carried away. I don't know what you think about that, Olivia. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting case, isn't it? I think one of the funny things about it is, as you said, the behaviour in this case is what we've all seen before so many times, you know, hiding assets, lying to the courts, you know, messing around during the proceedings, all those sorts of well, that sort of behaviour that we have day in, day out in all of our cases. And, you know, you are worried about running conduct arguments, even though the conduct is so blatant. And, you know, as as we can all now see a form of economic abuse and domestic abuse generally. Um, and so it's interesting that this case was the one that kind of, um, you know, hit home really for, for this judge. Um, there's been a spate of recent cases where the wife has been penalised for running up excessive costs. And, you know, there is an issue of costs that the courts and judges are, you know, rightly concerned about. But I feel that sometimes, you know, the, the financially weaker spouse is perhaps unfairly penalised for chasing assets that are not forthcoming and not transparent and that the court isn't kind of perhaps as supportive or understanding as it sh as it should be in that situation of the dynamic and that relationship and of whose fault those costs really are um so you know I'm not going to make the the obvious gender point but I think what's interesting is perhaps the sort of the vulnerability point um there was something about this man being illiterate and that was spoken about a lot during this case and if you look at the other two cases that we've mentioned Lim and Trahan the the wife's particular peculiar vulnerability having chronic post-traumatic stress disorder I think which was something she perhaps brought into the marriage and was compounded by her experiences in the marriage as well and then um, the UDDN case where vulnerability was also a factor and I wonder whether um, our sort of tentative steps into being able to tackle domestic abuse or economic abuse is easier where you can pick on some very specific vulnerability even though these are actually really universal situations that we're dealing with day in day out 
So that was what kind of struck me about this case. I think there was one other thing that the judge referred to the gasp factor, which we all know about. I know we spoke about it earlier. And she mentioned that a lot of economic abuse, you know, would not be necessarily, would not trigger the gasp factor. Um, and query how appropriate the gasp factor really is. It's a very old fashioned way of looking at domestic abuse, where we think of it as people being sort of punched in the face and isn't really appropriate to economic abuse, which is rarely going to have a gasp factor. It's, um, it's about the way that people live their lives and that very unfair dynamic, which impacts in the finances as well as, you know, general, <laughs> general wellbeing. So. So I, th- I think what I'm hearing from the two of you is that these these cases are uh, like the first step in developing this jurisprudence. It, but 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 be careful. It's 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 not particularly developed and certainly DP against DP. It, it's a decision of a circuit judge, isn't it? It's just a, it's an example, really, as opposed to any kind of precedent. Yeah, yeah, but I think it, 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 it I'm sorry, Chip, I say, I think it gives other judges a bit of cover, a bit of, you know, it's not just me potentially saying that Justice Mostu may not be entirely right. I've got someone, I've got someone else who agrees with my approach. I mean, as Olivia said, I mean, that vulnerability was definitely there in DP and EP. And to say, by the time of the hearing, the husband, in fact, was increasing in his level of literacy, but his case was that, you know, having uh, been reliant on her, that throughout the marriage, he said the wife was siphoning off joint funds, using them to accrue assets. Sometimes by chance, he found out about these assets. And of course, the wife gave very bad explanations about them. Uh, His case was that because of his illiteracy, you know, the wife took advantage and exploited his vulnerability in that way. It's also the case, going back to Trahana Lim, that, you know, there was evidence from a from a chartered psychologist in that case about the wife's diagnosis and from PTSD. But what, of course, what happens in a lot of prenup cases is that it's a case of just because you've got a diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean there's been an exploitation of a bargaining position. And ultimately, the judge found that whilst the psychological makeup of the wife in that case had deprived her of her necessarily ability to make the best decision for herself that wasn't caused by husband's conduct and therefore on that basis the the agreement wasn't vitiated by undue influence so I think it's uh, there's a lot um, a lot to be sort of gleaned from that certainly the DP and EP case as I say going back to one aspect where I've always been wary of which is that you you get over the threshold of proving that this conduct is relevant whether and I agree with Olivia that this whole idea of the gasp factor is just a, I think just a naked way of discouraging people from trying to run conduct cases but even even then uh, the judge says well now I'm satisfied that it is conduct um, nevertheless she's still got to decide whether in fact it was fair to make any adjustment from equality in favour of the husband and of course she did make a modest but ultimately in on the facts of that case 45,000 pound adjustment now whether a judge will feel quite able to do that in a case where the assets are a third or a quarter of that at 1.4 million and actually every 10,000 pounds or so really matters and might mean the difference between meeting a party's needs and not I think that's a, a lot harder to say I've got three cases um, that are recent cases where a party has been penalised um, essentially for running up what considered to be excessive costs in relation to the other party, which I think are helpful because if you are representing a party whose costs are going much higher than the other parties, you do need to be aware that, you know, judges are looking at at the ratio of costs and um and are finding it un, you know finding a lot of higher costs unacceptable um so it's just good to keep the guidance in mind um so there's uh, mr justice moston's um judgment in a and m which is 2021 case there was his honor judge hess's judgment in yc and zc uh, which is a 2022 case and there's also wc and hc which was a Mr. Justice Peel judgment. And those are the three recent uh, cost cases that should be causing us concern. 
So an, another aspect of the way we work now is, uh, and it partly goes back to the cost thing and the, the, the pressure on the courts, is that more and more we're being told to look at out-of-court methods of resolving disputes, whether that's mediation, private hearings, arbitration, whatever it might be. Do, do, do the two of you think that those have a role in a case and, and we're back here to talking about cases where there is you know absolutely no question that there is real coercive control going on do you think that any of those methods can can be used in in those cases or is it stick to the court so uh rights of women and a women's legal charity who i used to work for they say that they never recommend mediation in any case where there's been domestic abuse. I know that most mediators would not agree with that. And I wouldn't wouldn't be able to say in every single case whether it was appropriate or inappropriate. Um, I think that there is a real problem with people being pushed into mediation when they don't have the, the confidence to say no. And I think it's often done at an early stage of the case where people are still working out that they have what they have experienced as domestic abuse and a lot of people end up agreeing to unsafe arrangements for their children or unfair financial outcomes or financial outcomes which mean that they will continue to be subjected to control for years afterwards or they just end up going for a lengthy uh, a lengthy mediation process which doesn't actually end up in a resolution and then just increases you know costs and and financial hardship so i think there is a real problem with people being made to feel that they are being unreasonable or that they are being combative if they don't want to mediate with someone that ultimately they feel not on an even footing with and I think that's a real issue I also think that there are lots and lots of situations where there is a very live domestic abuse coercive control dynamic which continues post-separation and if somebody wants to continue controlling someone and punishing them they are not going to respectfully agree a fair outcome and the more you allow someone to delay the more likely they are to rearrange their finances hide their money (laughs) run your costs up put themselves in you know a favorable favorable position And, and and we've all seen cases where people really, really suffer because they delayed. And it's difficult saying this on a resolution podcast because we all know that what the majority of family law cases need is, you know, more talking, less litigating. Um, and that, you know, we as lawyers should be trying to help people to do that rather than kind of, you know, pushing people into court. But there are definitely situations where you should be alive to the fact that there are, you know, people on the other side of your cases who are never going to settle with your clients. And lots of the time, people just want to be heard. You know, your client might come to you and say, this person is out to destroy me. But if they come to you and they say they're out to destroy them, they probably are. Um, so putting huge pressure on someone to um, engage in a sort of entirely futile and probably, you know, emotionally harmful, financially draining, you know, negotiation process probably is is not in their interest. So I think we've all got to get better at identifying who our opponent is. And I think that in cases where there is real financial economic abuse, real coercive control, which is ongoing, which will continue through these proceedings, which we've all seen time and time again, you need to be alive to that. And I think you need to be quick off the mark in those cases and put your client in a really strong position straight away and then try negotiating. Well, I don't think you're going to be able to persuade a judge, are you, that you shouldn't have an FDR? because of these allegations so you're going to have to have an FDR to get a final hearing and I mean I think that's going to be the case regardless of the nature of the conduct alleged and so if you're going to do that I think I think it makes sense to be in proceedings because you've got the benefit of a court timetable but I I would say if it's if it's otherwise warranted it's probably worth having a private FDR which actually is a bit more customizable and capable of being you know adapted to to meet any of these concerns that are than you know the 12 o'clock in the five fdr list that some <clears throat> less than salubrious um, court center 
Yeah, I think that um, usually in cases where there's quite intense economic abuse sort of being worked through the proceedings, people don't want private FDRs because people want long timetables. They want to draw it out. If somebody is up for arbitration or a private FDR in order to get it resolved more quickly, you've probably got a a reasonable opponent on your hands anyway. Um, Obviously, that's a sweeping statement. But, um, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I think that's a good sign anyway, if somebody's willing to engage in a swift process. So obviously you mentioned earlier, Olivia, the concern about the fact that court delays can lead to disappearing assets and the abusive party are hiding things or rearranging things. So how how does all of this fit with the current status of the law in respect of litigants not not going off and helping themselves to disclosure or or document in order to establish their their case do you find that that gives you some feelings of the two there being a tension between the two concerns yeah I mean if we're referring to the case of Immerman I think it's outdated and I think you know these are shared assets they're marital assets and you know, the law could not be clearer that everybody, both parties and the court, are entitled to full and frank disclosure. Um, how can it how can it be that that it's then unlawful to access information about assets which should be forthcoming? Um, you know, and when that information is held by um, you know, your husband or your wife, it's I, I think it's an outdated case and it's ridiculous. What do you think, Mike? I think we've all been socially conditioned since 2010. We've all been on the re-education course and we all, you know, piled in and said we must recant and, and learn to not love the Hildebrand rules. I mean, I, I don't see how, I know it causes particular difficulty in this kind of case, but I mean, the Court of Appeal are very clear in the moment that says you're not allowed to access self-help just because you fear that disclosure won't be forthcoming. And I would say it does cause continues to cause a massive, massive headache in cases where, can I just show you this? Oh, please don't. But I don't know what you can do about it. And I think it's very unlikely we're going to get any significant change on on that uh, anytime soon. I mean, I say personally didn't think that the previous system was that bad in terms of it was capable of being controlled. But, you know, the, the current law is been in place since what 2010 and i i can't see even a an enlightened course of appeal saying that it has to change in the light of our awareness of this issue curse control sadly i'm sure you're right mike i don't i I can't see it changing in time soon but i i definitely don't agree with it um I i i think it's i mean i always thought it was very frustrating and i mean they're there are, there are some there's some interesting issues I think in civil procedure at the moment about you know documents obtained through through unorthodox means and that being able to be used but for the moment we're stuck with it I think. Is there anything else that either of you would like to talk about in this context? Yeah, I think the, the other thing that we need to be aware of as financial money practitioners, especially if you don't do any children work, is the practice direction 3a stuff about vulnerability and participation directions so that i mean that occurs throughout and so if you are making a case in your form e that says you know the husband has failed to provide any interim support that's economic abuse and the court therefore needs to be alerted to this and there's to consider whether there needs to be any participation directions, special measures at the first appointment. And so you've got to need to deal with that in your first appointment document so the court can, you know, potentially do something about that. There's a screening element to this as well, isn't there, Olivia, in terms of knowing your client about the the post-nup, the pre-nup, actually exploring, even in cases like that, with your client what the nature of the relationship is because you know if if, if, if if the whole point of such a document is that it's not signed under under duress and part of our job is to establish that isn't it mm. 
It's so interesting because I think, you know, we've all been in situations where we've got clients who want to, want to sign, you know, nuptial agreements which are not in their interest or even, you know, final final financial remedy orders. And you always say to them, well, you know, if it's not fair, judge may not approve it or court may not follow it. And we make them sign a disclaimer, you know, and we say, you know, you're doing this against advice, which I suppose may be helpful to them later. But I suppose we, we should really be saying, you know, is is this is this person under duress and, and, and giving that more thought. And so I think and I think that is something that law firms are becoming more alive to. And it's certainly something we've been talking about in our team and making sure that every solicitor in our team is able to spot um, and know how to deal with someone who's experiencing coercive control in, in every situation. Um, so hopefully solicitors can become a more active part of kind of providing a protective factor in these situations. But I think there's definitely a long way to go. Mike and Olivia, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and taking us through all of that. For the people listening, if you like what you're listening to, please leave us a five-star review.